Once there was a time when all the elements of earth, sea, and sky lived on the land together in many, many villages. Many years ago, back in the old country, there lived a holy, sweet couple who loved each other so very much. A long time ago, in a village, somewhere in Tamil Nadu, there lived a monkey. There was once a man, tall and handsome, who met a, a woman, beautiful and elegant, and they fell in love with each other. Once upon a time and welcome to the Story Story Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Ann Harding, and I have some stories for you. This is a podcast to hear traditional stories told by some of the best storytellers in the world. It will take you to long ago and far away and will bring you back safely. This episode is also one of the spooky persuasion. If you are the designated driver for sensitive souls, you might want to come back to this one later or re-listen to another episode. I would suggest episode 13 for A Twisted Hansel and Gretel by Ingrid Nixon, or get a total throwback to before the show had opening music, and listen to episode 5 and hear about Brave Molly Whoopi by Megan Hicks. So be bold, be bold, but not too bold. Have you ever wandered through an old graveyard? The graveyards where the most recent deaths are in the 1920s. The ornate carvings are being worn away by the wind, rain, and weather. I enjoy taking slow, quiet walks down the rows, looking at the names that aren't as common anymore, like Edward, Myrtle, Gertrude. The trees are huge and heavy, perfect for quiet reading spots or a little picnic. One afternoon as I sat in an old graveyard and watched the leaves fall off the trees, one by one, drifting on the breeze came another sound, music. The sound of a violin. I looked around for the player. Not a soul was in sight. There are many stories where music is important to the living and the dead. The first story I have for you is by Kevin Cordy. He has been telling stories for over 25 years and hails from Ohio. This is Aaron Kelly's Bones. Everyone knew Aaron Kelly. Aaron Kelly was as mean as a three-headed snake, and his poison was even worse. He had a temper, and nothing ignited it more than seeing other men talk to his Miss Alice. He called her his prize. Not a prize like a tiara you parade around at a beauty contest, but a prize like a hidden treasure you keep to yourself. Aaron Kelly tried his best to hide Miss Alice from everyone. He insisted Miss Alice was his. No one's going to take my prize away from me. I'll have the head of any man who tries. Once, a man had come up to Miss Alice. Madam, with that new hat, you look as pretty as a son. The whole town heard Aaron Kelly yell. I'll block out the sun if you ever say those words to my price again. When Aaron Kelly arrived in the town, people moved out of the way. Mothers grabbed their children. Grown men would quickly nod and just as fast run away when they saw him. It was said his eyes 
could dig deep into your very bones. It seemed as nothing affected Aaron Kelly. Nothing it is except the passage of time. As the years passed, Aaron Kelly was disturbing the town people a little less and staying at home a little more. Eventually, he took sick and stayed in bed. Passerbys could hear him coughing <laughs> the next town over. Some said he did not have long to live, and in fact, he did not. And during this time, no one saw Miss Alice. No one saw her at the grocery store. No one saw her in town. No one saw her at all. People believed she was trapped in their house. In fact, the next time anyone saw her, Miss Alice arrived in town wearing a coal black dress, black as the night itself. She marched in old Harris's funeral parlor and whispered, Aaron Kelly's dead. Someone might want to know, but I doubt it. She then turned into the newspaper office and took out an obituary that read, Aaron Kelly died today after a long sickness. It seemed that everyone in town came to the funeral except the fiddler. Mr. Henry played Will the Circle Be Unbroken at every funeral. On this day, the fiddle was silent. Aaron Kelly had more company when he was dead than he ever had alive. Some said they were more there out of curiosity than care. Would the pastor be able to think of a single good thing to say about the man? The only one to wear black that day was Miss Alice. The preacher Hutchinson came up to the podium and said, About Aaron Kelly, the good Lord knows. And that's all I have to say about that. Old man Phelps said, I can't believe the old man's dead. Phillips said, I think he died five years ago, but his body didn't know it yet. Young Tommy Bloodsoe said, I don't know if I can look at his grave. His bones scare me. Miss Alice didn't cry. She paid her respects and left. A year passed, and Miss Alice never visited the grave of Aaron Kelly. She had no reason to. It had been a year of quiet. No one called her stupid or worthless. She only knew now it was safe to smile. No one called her a stubborn mule anymore. Aaron Kelly's bones were in the ground. In the spring, Miss Alice planted a garden with the new azalea bushes in the front yard. She liked to sit on the porch and anticipate the arrival of their blooms. She had tried to grow them once before, but Aaron Kelly pulled them out and said, Old woman, <laughs> those are weeds just like you. They'll die here, and so will you. One day, Miss Alice heard a knock on her door. When she opened it, there stood Mr. Henry, the fiddler carrying a small sprig of flowers. Good evening, Miss Alice. My, you look lovely in your sun hat. I was wondering, perhaps, if it's not seen as impolite, would you care to join me at the country dance this Saturday? I would be most honored to have you as my guest. Miss Alice looked at Mr. Henry, couldn't help but notice how kind he was to her. She agreed to go to the dance. Meanwhile, the bones of Aaron Kelly started to itch. At the dance, Miss Alice never stood still. 
Not only could Mr. Henry fiddle as good as a cat crawls, but when he was not striking at the bow, he could dance. Miss Alice felt safe in his arms. The dance didn't end that night. It led to another night, another night, and still yet another night. They were soon dating and dancing on a regular basis. The bones of Aaron Kelly continued to move. Late one Friday night, the sun had gone to bed, and only a sliver of the moon was awake. Miss Alice was home alone when she heard a strange, irregular sound at her door. It sounded less like a knock and more like a scraping. When Miss Alice opened her door, her smile left her for good. Standing in front of her was not a living thing at all, but a skeleton. On the skeleton's arm, she saw Aaron Kelly's old broken wristwatch. It was the same one that she told him to fix, but he said, If it ain't broke, I could still wear it. She knew then this skeleton was dead old Aaron Kelly, making a house call. The skeleton glared at her and said, Woman, I told you, uh, I would return if you ever saw another man. This is my house and you're my woman, and here's where I'm going to stay. Skeleton walked to the rocking chair and began to rock back and forth, back and forth. Look here, Aaron Kelly, you have to leave. You died. It's not right for you to be here. Nonsense. Dead or alive, I'm staying right here, said Aaron Kelly. You gotta go now. I'm not budging. Meanwhile, Miss Alice spied Mr. Henry from her big bay window walking down the lane. She'd asked him to teach her to strum a few notes, and he was late arriving, but he was coming now. Miss Alice pleaded with the bones to leave. Woman, fix me something to eat. Your food's worse than the worms. But I am hungry. Miss Alice fed Aaron Kelly some simmering hot soup, but it spilled out through the bones, washing away to the living room floor. Aaron Kelly, I have fed you. Now it's time for you to go. About this time, Mr. Henry knocked on the door. Miss Alice tried to ignore it, but Aaron Kelly yelled, Open the door, woman. Don't you have any manners? Reluctantly, she opened the door. Miss Alice's face was pale. "'Miss Alice, what's wrong?' Mr. Henry inquired. "'Miss Alice simply pointed to the rocking chair. "'When he saw what was in that chair, Mr. Henry was speechless. "'Slowly, ever so slowly, he took Miss Alice's hand. "'Both of them watched as the skeleton rose from the rocking chair. "'Henry, you and your case need to leave now. "'Mark my words.' You cannot have my woman as long as I remain in this house. You need to stick to fiddling. I intend to stay, so you best be gone. She never was your woman. You've treated her like property. You say you love her, but you don't, because you don't know what love is. I love her, and I intend to stay as long as she will have me. And... Henry is right. You never bought me flowers. You never noticed my smile. You never cared for me. I was more like a slave than a wife. Leave, Aaron Kelly. I do not love you, and I never have. 
What good would it have been to bring flowers to you? All they are is weeds and fancy dress, just like you. The hours whittled by. Miss Alice and Mr. Henry didn't know what to do. Each minute ticked away as they watched the bones rock back and forth, back and forth. Finally, Mr. Henry stood up. Aaron Kelly, you said I should stick to fiddling, and that's just what I'm going to do. He turned to Miss Alice, and he whispered in her ear, Since we missed the dance tonight, I'll bring the dance to you. With that, Mr. Henry opened his case, took out his fiddle, and began to play. Miss Alice, sometimes you have to go on and leave the hard times by. Let's have some fun. He then struck up Turkey and the Straw. No one can play like Mr. Henry. Just hearing his music made your toes tap. Even the bones of Aaron Kelly began to jiggle. Next, he tuned up the Mountain Whippoorwill. He played stronger and longer and stronger. Not only did Aaron's toe bones begin to tap, his whole skeleton began to twist and turn and sway to the music. Aaron Kelly began to dance, and Mr. Henry played faster and faster. Soon a thigh bone flew from the skeleton and hit the fireplace. Boom! As the music got louder and stronger, his elbow bone hit the ceiling. Boom! Play harder, Mr. Henry, play harder, yelled Miss Alice. Bones flew everywhere. The leg bone hit the cat box, and the kitty slunk screaming into the kitchen. A finger bone sailed into the living room. A toe bone hit Grandpa's portrait. Some bones flew by the cabinet, some under the rocker. Some outside bones were everywhere. And Mr. Henry played on and on and on and on. Miss Alice began to scoop up the bones as fast as she could, one by one, as she stashed them into an old flower sack. She and Mr. Henry hurried to the graveyard, where they spent the rest of the night burying the bones in four different plots. She saved one bone in the sack. The night air was quiet. Six months later, Miss Alice and Mr. Henry married. On their wedding night, they placed the small bone Miss Alice had saved above their fireplace. They hardly ever raised their voices with each other. But on the few occasions when they did, they stopped when one or the other would notice the bone right above the fireplace. Meanwhile, in that graveyard, it said the bones still move. But it's a fool's tale, because once something's dead, he or she is dead. Ain't that right? Nibble, nibble, little mouse, who's that nibbling on my house? Well, you're welcome to come on in to Hansel and Gretel's restaurant, where they serve award-winning barbecue and biscuits for those hungry enough to eat a child. But no humans were harmed in the making of these delicious ribs and brisket platters. The two siblings learned the secrets in the sauce, and they serve it up until you are good and full. Come to Hansel and Gretel's restaurant and leave happy. (whistles) 
I sat underneath the tree listening to the music for a bit. It was odd, but there was something familiar about it. As if this was some old music being played, but I couldn't quite place the song. I stood and began walking around looking behind the larger tombstones and carved angels for the player. The music got clearer until I came around a particular tree and there I stood in front of an old headstone. So old, I couldn't read the name that had been carved into it. Only a death date of 1899. And it was from under my feet that I heard the music. I knelt in the leaves and pressed my ear to the ground. The music was coming from under the earth. I was completely flummoxed. I stood and looked at the gravestone when I heard footsteps come up behind me. Turning, I saw the groundskeeper, who looked friendly enough and spoke kindly. I'm guessing you're wondering where the music is coming from. That grave there is the resting place of a very famous local musician. Is he? I'm glad you hear the music too. Where is it coming from? It's coming from his grave. He wrote more than 3,000 pieces of music in his lifetime. And now that he's been laid to rest, well, you're hearing him decomposing. Things that are buried do not always stay quiet. The second story for the podcast is by Kim Whitecamp, a well-known teller on stages across America. She is a storyteller, singer-songwriter, and knows how to tell about things in the shadows. This is her story. Grave Dancer. Ivy left home. Her daddy did it. Unable to put up with her mama's drinking and not ready to care for a child, he left them both behind. And if he could do it, she could do it. Ivy walked for miles, and as the sun rose up over the hills, she saw in the distance a small town. She set her sights on it. My new home, she thought. She found a grove of trees by a creek just on the edge of town and settled down for the day, trying to work up a plan. She had nothing but her dress, shoes, and a hard piece of bread. After she ate, she cleaned up in the creek and carefully washed her dress, trying not to rub clean through the old material. The next morning, the sun came up warm and welcoming. Ivy dressed and headed to town and put her plan into motion. Going from door to door, Ivy would knock, telling the lady of the house that she could cook, clean, work a farm, can, care for babies. Most of the ladies took one look at Ivy and their heart broke. Her legs were covered with bruises, her hair knotted, her clothing worn through. Most of them wanted to help her, but they had no work. But when Ivy knocked on the fifth door, she got lucky. A new baby had arrived and the wife was frazzled. She put a thin mattress on the back porch and told Ivy she could sleep there and work for food. No questions asked. Ivy thanked her profusely and went straight to work. Long days cooking and cleaning, warm food in her belly, cool, peaceful nights of sleep on the back porch. Ivy was in heaven. But the work did not last forever and after a few weeks the woman told Ivy that she was feeling fine now and and did not really have the means to keep her on. She told Ivy that if other ladies wanted a reference before hiring her, she would give her one. And with that, she handed Ivy a folded towel, bulging with food, and sent her on her way. It went on like this for over a year, Ivy relying on strangers, strangers relying on Ivy, until the next spring, a drought hit and things were hard. Water was scarce, people were getting mean, and the farmers were worried. Day after day, Ivy tried to find work, but there was none. And even if some of the folks had work, they couldn't afford to feed another mouth. Some had pity and sent her away with a small hunk of cheese or hard bread. But despite all of this, Ivy was still happy. 
A life with nothing was better than a life with her mama. But then the food ran out and the weather started to get hotter. Ivy began to cough and fear started to creep up her spine and she became desperate. At the far end of town was a fine house. And in that house was a large man, a greedy, gluttonous, loudmouth, given to drink in wild fits of rage. Everyone had told Ivy to stay away from the home of Rufus Barrett, and she did. Rumor had it that his wife had been putting away money so she could leave him, and he had gotten word of it and killed her. And though it couldn't be proved, that's what they said. They said that at his wife's funeral, he howled a whiskey howl and said that he was glad to be rid of the burden of that woman and if that he was in better shape, he'd dance on her grave. Even though Rufus Barrett owned half the town, up till now, Ivy had been able to avoid him. But the rumbling of her stomach and her dry, parched lips made her think that, well, it couldn't be that bad. And with no wife, maybe he was in need of help. That evening, she walked through town and followed the long, curving road that led to the home of Rufus Barrett. She walked up to the imposing door and lifted the knocker, letting it fall against the carved wood. She could hear it echo through the house. A gravelly voice started yelling from within, and Ivy wanted to turn and run, but fear held her in place. The door swung open, and there he was, Rufus Barrett. A drink in one hand, a cane in the other, his jowls quivered when he spoke. What do you want, girl? Are you lost? He said, looking over her shoulder. No, sir, I'm I'm just looking for work. I, I cook, clean, sew, and garden, and all I ask is for a bed and... Get off my property, he shouted, cutting her off. I have servants I don't have a use for a beggar. And he slammed the door. <sighs> Ivy let out a breath of air, fully relieved that the idea had not panned out. She turned and started down the path when she heard the click of the door as it opened again. Wait! She turned and saw Rufus Barrett silhouetted in the door. Come back here, he said. Ivy walked back. You'll do anything for bed and food? Ivy bit her lip. Yes, sir. Any any type of physical labor. I, I may be thin, but I am strong. He grabbed her roughly by the arm and led her into the house. Sit. I'll be back in a moment. He disappeared up the stairs and Ivy looked around. In all of her life, she had never seen such beautiful things. Red velvets, marble staircase, richly carved mahogany furniture, beautiful paintings and statues. By the stairs, propped against the wall, was a painting. Ivy stood and walked over to it. The woman in the picture had pale blue eyes that looked like a spring sky tendrils of blonde hair curled around her face and even though she was beautiful she looked sad ivy could not stop staring she had never seen such a lovely woman i told you to sit ivy jumped as rufus barrett awkwardly made his way down the steps with his cane he reached the bottom of the steps picked up the painting and turned it around and leaned it against the stairs <laughs> trash he said spitting on the back of the canvas Ivy noticed that he had put his hat on. She also noticed the nauseating stench of heavy alcohol. Come with me, he said. Ivy followed him down a long path towards town. 
Because of his limp, it took a while, but soon they had made a left turn onto Breckridge Road. Ivy stayed behind, not daring to talk. Rufus led the way, muttering under his breath. After about eight minutes, he stopped. Here we are, he said. Ivy looked up. It was the cemetery. Rufus walked in with Ivy following down the winding paths and then onto the grass, and then he stopped. Here she is, he said, spitting on the ground. Didn't appreciate a thing I gave her. He looked at Ivy with the same look her mama used to get when she talked about Ivy's daddy, and she cringed expecting a blow, but it didn't come. Instead, he pushed her onto the grave. I want you to dance. What? I want you to dance on my wife's grave each night from nine till midnight. When the bell tower rings 12, come back to the house. There are servants' quarters in the back, and you'll have a bed. But don't you try and cheat me, you little brat. I'll be checking on you, and if you cheat me, you'll get a beating and be sent on your way. With that, he turned and walked away. And in that exact moment, the bell tower struck nine tolls. Rufus Barrett turned and looked at her, his face red and veined with rage. Dance! Ivy jumped and then began to shuffle her feet. The earth beneath her had just begun to sprout new grass, and it whispered across the bottom of her feet as they move. Rufus grunted his approval, turned, and limped out of the graveyard. And Ivy danced. The cold chill of night began to set in. When the clock struck ten, Ivy's legs were starting to feel weak. She had wanted to take a break, but was sure that Rufus Barrett was hidden behind a tomb somewhere watching her, and by the time the clock struck eleven, her shoes had become damp with moon dew, and the only sound was the pat, pat, pat of her feet on the grave, and the lone hoo, hoo, hoo of the night owl. When the clock struck midnight, Ivy collapsed onto the grave and wept. Every part of her body ached, her feet were blistered, and she actually wished she was back home sleeping on the hard wooden floor. Her eyes closed, and dreams came. And there on the grave she lay, until the first wink of morning. She dragged herself back to Rufus Barrett's home and found the servants' quarters. Two women there gave her a warm bed, bread, milk, and a good scrubbing. She laid on a small cot, her cheek relishing the rough threads of the sheet, and she slept for hours. And so it was that each night for three hours, Ivy would dance on the grave of poor Mrs. Barrett. Some nights she could see Rufus Barrett watching her from the street outside the cemetery. And other nights she knew that she was very, very alone. As the days passed, Ivy became very strong. She enjoyed her time during the day with the servants, and they started to call her the little grave dancer. She ate well, wandered through the gardens and the woods, and very rarely caught sight of Rufus Barrett, and when she did, she hid. She liked helping with the cooking and scrubbing and singing songs with the servants. One day during lunch, she was scrubbing laundry and humming when the old woman Aggie came and pulled her away, one of the servants. She led her to the back of the grounds, and they went under the shade of an old pin oak tree. Girl, I know that rotten Rufus. I know what he have you doing. You best be careful, because you be messing with serious stuff in that graveyard. Sweet Mrs. Barrett, she loved us. I miss her each day. Here, take this for when you go dancing. It'll keep you safe and bring you luck. 
the old woman pressed something cold into Ivy's hand. It was no bigger than a dime, dull brass worn down over time. It was a small circle, and in the middle was cut an arm with a a clenched tight fist. Ivy fingered it and, and looked at the woman and thanked her, and then ran off, dropping it into her dress pocket. That night she walked to the grave. Her foot landed on Mrs. Barrett's plot with the last toll of the nine o'clock bell, and she began to dance. She was no longer sad to do so. She had decided that if she had to dance on this grave, she would do it as an honor. And so each night she closed her eyes and she thought of the lovely Mrs. Barrett and all of the good things she had heard about her. She danced with joy, spinning and twirling her feet, moving delicately now over the settled grave. But tonight was different. As Ivy sang and danced, she started to hear a soft humming. It sounded like the wings of a thousand hummingbirds flapping out a melody. She opened her eyes and realized she was not alone. There, dancing on the grave, with her, was Mrs. Barrett. Her pale, translucent hair hung down her back, her body nothing more than a long, graceful swirl of fog and pale mist. Her eyes were blue jewels, and she had the look of peace upon her. She reached out and took Ivy's trembling hand and mouthed the words, Dance. Lizzie realized she had stopped moving, and she looked down at her feet and willed them to move. The beautiful humming began again, and that night Ivy did not dance alone. At midnight, the bell tolled, and on the final stroke, the beautiful humming song stopped, and with fluid movement, Mrs. Barrett returned to the earth like summer rain into spring ground. Ivy walked home that night determined not to tell anyone. Who would believe her? She would lose her job. She would miss miss the ladies she worked with each day. She would miss her bed. The night became chilly, so she slipped her hands into her pockets, her fingers wrapping around the old talisman that Aggie had given her. For the next few days, Mrs. Barrett danced with Ivy. Each night, when Ivy heard the humming, she would open her eyes and smile, and Mrs. Barrett would smile back, and they would dance hand in hand until midnight. But then, on Sunday, things changed. Mrs. Barrett came, but this time she did not take Ivy's hand. This time, she did not look peaceful. This time, she left the grave and floated up and out of the graveyard. Ivy had to run to catch up, and she followed the dead woman until they came to the Barrett property. The willowy figure swooped down over the back of the hill behind the house and disappeared behind the huge pin oak where Aggie had given her the luck charm. Ivy was out of breath when she caught up, and as she walked behind the tree, she saw Mrs. Barrett hovering steadily a serious look upon her face. Ivy could hear her own heart whooshing in her ears as she watched Mrs. Barrett reach deep into the earth. Then with her hand closed, she rose back up and moved towards Ivy. She reached out and took Ivy's hand and placed within it a gold coin. On the front was Lady Liberty, and on the back was an eagle. Ivy had never seen a coin like this. Mrs. Barrett beckoned her over to the spot where she had pulled out the coin. She took her free hand and pushed it towards the dirt and had Ivy follow along with her. And then Ivy understood. Over the next few days, Ivy tried to plan how she could dig up the money. 
It would be hard. She worked all day, danced all night, and then was expected to be in by uh, 1230, tucked into her bed. Where would she even get the tools? How deep was the money in the ground? What if Rufus Barrett caught her? All of these thoughts wound her stomach tight until one night things changed. She had been dancing for half an hour when she heard the humming. She opened her eyes and saw Mrs. Barrett, who looked very sad. Ivy knew why. You don't understand, she said. I appreciate your kindness, and I know what you're trying to do to help me, but I don't have the time or the tools to go digging, and what if I get caught? I'm scared, and I don't want to get in trouble. I like my bed, and I like old Aggie, and I'm scared of Rufus Barrett. Mrs. Barrett nodded. Her head dropped for a moment, and then she left the grave. Ivy took chase and followed her all the way to the house, but this time Mrs. Barrett did not go to the old pin oak tree. Instead, she floated right up the front stairs through the front door. Ivy ran up and hid under a window by a holly bush. Its leaves were poking her through her dress, but she didn't move, and she didn't make a sound. She watched as Mrs. Barrett picked up her turned portrait that was still propped against the steps. And with supernatural force, she threw it against the wall. The wood splintered and the canvas ripped. Rufus appeared at the top of the steps, bellowing and drunk. What is all the racket? You know not to come into the house at night. You're to stay in your quarters. No sooner did his foot take its second step onto the stairs than Rufus Barrett saw his dead wife at the bottom. His mouth contorted into a silent scream. His hand clutched his chest. His foot in mid-step missed the next stair, and he fell hard down the marble case. Ivy watched her heart pounding as Mrs. Barrett hovered above his still and broken body. And then she heard the sound of humming, and Mrs. Barrett looked out the window at Ivy and disappeared. The train settled to a stop. Ivy straightened her silk hat as she stepped off the train. It had been 15 years since she had been in this little town. She set her purse on the crook of her arm and walked, ignoring the looks from men as she made her way through the streets. She had a leisurely supper and then checked into her hotel. Her luggage had arrived and she indulged in a hot bath and then put her clothing away. At around 8.30, she slipped into a simple black dress and headed out into a thick night. She walked to the cemetery and found the grave that she knew so well. Reaching into her pocket, she pulled out the talisman that she had gotten from Aggie so long ago. A luck charm. I don't need this anymore, she whispered, and she pushed it into the yielding earth by Mrs. Barrett's tombstone. She stood and turned to walk away and then stopped. The bell started to toll. Ivy stepped onto the grave and on the last stroke, Ivy's tiny feet began to dance. She closed her eyes and smiled and twirled and spun. The air began to fill with the faint sound of humming She opened her eyes, expecting to see the pale ghost of Mrs. Barrett before her, but it was not there. The humming grew louder and louder, and Ivy began to turn around to see where the sound was coming from, and off to her left, she saw Mrs. Barrett. She walked towards the smiling dead woman 
and then turned to read the large marble tombstone that marked the grave where the woman stood. Etched into the cold stone was the name of Rufus Barrett. The humming became louder until it filled the whole graveyard with an eerie melody, and Mrs. Barrett danced like she had never danced before. Thank you for listening to the Story Story Podcast. Show notes and more information about the storytellers you heard today can be found at storystorypodcast.com forward slash episode 33. Show the love. Find Kevin Cordy and Kim Whitecamp on Facebook and the internet. Tell them you heard them on the podcast and now want to hear them tell more stories. These stories came from Kevin Cordy's CDs, Dare to be Scared, and Kim Whitecamp's CD, Dead Bird Singing. If you're in the mood to be chilled and thrilled, go find these lovely albums and enjoy. In Fairy Tales, the magic number is three, so I have three things for you to do. One, like and rate the show on iTunes. It helps others find the podcast. Two, join the mailing list. You will get a link to the podcast delivered to your inbox, plus news and other storytelling-related goodness. Three, consider becoming a supporter. For as little as $4, the cost of a carving pumpkin, you help support the podcast and will get access to a story story short, which is just what it sounds like, an extra story just for the patrons. The short for this episode is Tears That Crumbled the Great Wall, a story from China told by Julie Moss. You can find out how to support the podcast and join the mailing list at storystorypodcast.com. And a thank you as wide as the grin on Jack Skellington to those who are donating. If you would like to stay connected, you can find me and the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Story Story Podcast or Rachel Ann Harding. Please come say hello. Check out the ads for fairy tale sponsors and let me know the favorite story you have heard or the favorite stories of your childhood. Who knows? Maybe you'll hear them here soon. Next episode. You know you'll never get a straight answer to questions asked in a fairy tale. So before that episode comes out, ask yourself... What is the sweetest sound in the world to you? Mine is the heartbeat of those I love. I hope you'll join me again. And until then, live happily ever after. The wedding lasted for seven days. I know. I was there. I would cross... Twenty-seven countries, wear out three pairs of boots, battle two giants, and the grandmother of all witches, Baba Yaga, before I was reunited with my frog princess. But that's a story for another time. The last thing he said before he died was a curse on anyone who would dare to go sing with the fairies. Just because a story is strange mistake. It can also be true.